Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. The Superstation of Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Tuesday, June, uh, Tuesday, June 29th, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well. It's Tuesday, June 29th, 2021, and we are live. So we have a packed show for you today. It's been a very busy day at a teacher two-hour online class um, for my Saturday class that got postponed uh, of ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. So taught that uh, today. And I wanted to deal with uh, two stories today. First of all, this is the 80th birthday of civil rights leader, human rights leader, Pan-Africanist, anti-war Africanist, anti-war activist, Pan-African revolutionary, Kwame Ture, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael. So we're going to talk about Kwame Ture in the second part of the show. And he's uh, maybe best known for popularizing the term black power in uh, June of 1966 during the March Against Fear in Mississippi. But the first story I want to deal with is a study that came out a few days ago. And I saw a number of articles about this. They talked about on MSNBC this past weekend. Um, African-Americans are more likely to die in traffic accidents. African-Americans are more likely to die in traffic accidents. And the COVID-19 pandemic made made it worse. The COVID-19 pandemic made it worse. More African-Americans died in traffic deaths in 2020 than any other racial group, even though uh, Americans drove less during the pandemic. And experts say that this is not new. So I, I read the article from there's one from uh, NBC News and one from Washington Post as well. And what this really deals with is uh, structural inequities. OK, this deals with uh, structural inequities based upon race. And we deal with uh, African-Americans and uh uh, Latinos being less likely to own cars, uh, more likely to depend upon public transportation. There's a number of different things that contribute to this. Okay. And all this deals with the maldistribution of wealth, power, and resources, the maldistribution of uh, wealth, power, and resources. So we're going to talk about this study. And there was a segment from uh, Politics Nation uh, this past Saturday where. Uh, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton spoke with uh, an expert on this, and it was really eye-opening. And this also ties into the infrastructure bill as well. This, this connects to a no number of different things dealing with policies. Uh, this also ties into a history of uh, interstate highways running through the African-American community, disrupting our communities as well. So there are a number of different uh, contributing factors uh, to this, okay? So we'll talk about that and we'll talk some about uh, Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael as well. All right. I, I want to remind you that uh, we have class number one of uh, my new online class, Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. This is starting up uh, Sunday, July 4th, the 4th of July, Sunday, July 4th, 2021. 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is a 
10 week online course that I teach. We deal with thousands of years of history and we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place as well. Okay. So uh, we'll post the link here. You can register for it. It starts up Sunday, July 4th. If you go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, it's right on the homepage. Uh, scroll down. You see the information for our radio show around six days a week. You see the information for the online course. Click uh, register here and it takes you to the next page and just click on enroll. You can enroll in the course. Uh, as soon as you register, you can start watching uh, the content and we have some bonus content there you can watch. But you'll be registered for the class for starts of Sunday, July 4th, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We do the class live. All the sessions are recorded. All the sessions are recorded, so you can go back and watch it over and over again also. Okay. This is Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. Kemet's one of the original names uh, for Egypt. So it's a fantastic uh, online course. You can use this also with your children. I would say it's uh, PG-13. So I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips, a ton of information. All right. And guest speakers as well. And guest speakers as well. All right. On the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now it's correct wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself. And what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you control the comforts of his or his or her actions. Because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here. We do occurring events in history and politics, education. Economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. The sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. The sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right. Uh, and if you'd like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, or through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting six days a week. Um, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. And you can also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right. Uh, I want to jump into this first topic here dealing with this study uh, regarding uh, traffic accidents and African-Americans uh, involved in traffic accidents. So there was this uh, there was this article that I saw a few days ago from uh, NBC News. There's also one from the Washington Post as well. Uh, black people are more likely to die in traffic accidents. COVID made it worse. Black people are more likely to die in traffic accidents. COVID made it worse. Uh, so African-Americans represented the largest. African-Americans represented the largest increase in traffic deaths in 2020. Uh than any other racial group, the largest increase in traffic deaths in 2020 than any other racial group, even as Americans drove less overall due to the coronavirus pandemic, according to recently released uh, data. Now, an estimated 38,000 
680 people. An estimated 38,680 people died in motor vehicle crashes in 2020, the largest projected number of deaths since the year 2007, according to uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation's uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Now, the number of African-Americans who died in such crashes was up 23 percent from uh, 2019. The largest increase in traffic deaths, traffic deaths among racial groups, according to the administration's project. Now, Norman Garrick, Norman Garrick, a civil and environmental uh, engineering professor at the University of Connecticut, said the number, the numbers are saddening, but not surprising, saddening, but not surprising. He said African-Americans tend, he said African-Americans tend to be overrepresented uh, as walkers in this country, pedestrians, as walkers in this country. He said, quote, this is not by choice. In many cases, uh, African, African-Americans cannot afford motor vehicles. And people that walk in this country tend to experience a much higher rate of traffic fatality. Okay, so we're talking about economics. We're talking about racial wealth gap. Okay, we're talking about the racial pay gap, pay disparity among African-Americans and whites. This impact, this, this, it would, uh, racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race, which comes out of the ideology of European white supremacy. Racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed distributed based upon race, which comes out of the ideology of European white supremacy. Now, I'm not calling all white people white supremacists or things like this. No, we're talking about a power structure, okay? And unfortunately, many people confuse what racism is. Racism has, racism has nothing to do with not liking people or calling people racial epithets or anything like that. That's not racism. Racism is a power structure, okay? Racism occurs when one race of people control the majority of the wealth, power, resources, benefits, privileges, land, access to education, access to opportunity. And they use that to marginalize, subordinate and do harm to another race of people. This is this is what racism is. So when we deal with. Addressing the policies and laws put in place that are causing harm, maldistributing wealth, power, resources, all this deals with politics. You have to correct that with laws and policies, okay? Not feelings and prayers and well wishes and we'll keep you in our prayers and you have our deepest sympathy, okay? It, 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 it was laws and policies that put us in this predicament. It's gonna be laws and policies that take us out of this predicament. So Norman Garrick, a civil and environmental engineering professor at the University of Connecticut, said the numbers are saddening but not surprising, not surprising. He said African-Americans tend to be overrepresented as walkers in this country. He said this is not by choice. In many cases, African-Americans cannot afford motor vehicles and people that walk in this country tend to experience a much, much higher rate of traffic fatality. He said we're talking eight to 10 times more. So, so people who walk tend to have eight to 10 more times, uh, eight to 10 more times higher traffic fatality rate. He said, it's a perfect storm 
of a lot of horrible forces. And during this whole coronavirus pandemic, one of the things that have been talked about is how it has exposed the racial, the structural inequities in this society and the race, the racial disparities. Now, the article goes on to say this most likely this most likely represents yet another way the health crisis has had an outsized effect on African-Americans. Even in the early days of the pandemic, the National Safety Council found that the emptier roads were proving to be more deadly. The National Safety Council found that the empty, the emptier roads were proving to be more deadly in the early days of the pandemic with a 14% jump in roadway deaths per miles driven in March, a 14% jump in roadway deaths per miles driven in March. And African-Americans are more likely to face traffic injuries in general from 2010 to 2019. African-American pedestrians were 82% more likely to be hit by drivers. According to a 2021 report from Smart Growth America, we're going to continue this on the other side of the break. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation of Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30-plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network. Subscribe now. Hi, I'm Joel Wilson, President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting, LLC, a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services. We are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365, and Surface tablets, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses, take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that will satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. Start your free trial today. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation of Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Tuesday, June 29th, 2021. 
and we are live. The calling number is 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number. If you have a question or comment, 313-778-7600. Right before the break, we were talking about this study that came out a few days ago, and there's an article from NBC News from June 22nd, 2021, uh, that deals with this. Uh, Black people are more likely to die in traffic accidents. COVID-19 made it worse. There's also um, an article from, there's also one from the Washington Post uh, dealing with this uh, study as well. And I'm going to flip over to the one from the Washington Post also. Then we're going to go to this clip here uh, from MSNBC. Uh, Traffic deaths increased during the pandemic. The toll fell more heavily on black residents, report shows. A new analysis found that even before 2020's increase, African-Americans were killed on roads at a rate almost 25 percent higher than white people, even before the increase in the year 2020, African-Americans were killed on roads at a rate almost 25% higher than white people. Now, this is from Washington Post, June 22nd, 2021. And this ties into structural inequities. This ties into infrastructure. This ties into uh, a racial wealth gap, a racial pay gap. All of this is connected. All right, I want to go back to the piece from uh, NBC News. All right, so this most likely represents yet another way the health crisis has had an outsized effect on African-Americans, even in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. The National Safety Council found that the emptier the roads that found that the emptier the roads were proving to be more deadly found that the emptier the roads were proving to be more deadly with a 14% jump in roadway deaths per miles driven in March. And African Americans are more likely to face injuries in general from 20, uh, from 2010 to 2019, African-American pedestrians were 82% more likely to be hit by drivers, 82% more likely to be hit by drivers. According to a 2021 report from Smart Growth America, which is a Washington, Bay, with a Washington D.C.-based advocacy group focused on urban development. Now, Calvin Gladney, President of Smart Growth America, Calvin Gladney, President of Smart Growth America, identified three major reasons African-Americans bear the brunt of roadway injuries, infrastructure, design and racism, infrastructure, design and racism. Predominantly African-American neighborhoods are less likely to have crosswalks warning signs and other safety mechanisms mechanisms he said this deals with infrastructure design and racism and many high and many high speed highways 
are in or go through communities of color thanks to a federal effort in the 1950s to modernize the nation's roadways. That's the U.S. Interstate Highway Acts in 1952 and 1956 that drove about 51,000 miles of U.S. Interstate Highways all across the country. They ran through uh, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley here in Detroit. They ran through areas uh, uh, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the 1970s, early 1970s. U.S. Interstate, uh, you have U.S. Interstate Highway 244 and uh, uh, U.S. Uh, in the, you have uh, U.S. Highway 75 running through Tulsa. There's this uh, big article here from NBC News. There's a link in this first article to the second one here from NBC News, the second report. Bulldozed and bisected bulldozed and bisected highway construction built a legacy of inequality. This is from June 18, 2021. It talks about how during the largest public public works program ever attempted in the United States, African-American and Latino communities in cities across the country met the blade of the bulldozer and the crush of the wrecking ball, making room making room for ribbons of new highway. Whether through blindness or design, the mid-century American interstate highway program demolished homes and bisected communities driven by the promise of prosperity, faster commutes and jobs. This was urban renewal that many of us call Negro removal. Barbara Lance Keller, 75 years old, a lifelong resident of uh, Treme, a, a, a once bustling New, New Orleans community. She said that Interstate 10 cut through uh, uh, this uh, community in the 1960s. She said the highway really destroyed that. She said everything we needed was in our neighborhood. Everything we needed was in our neighborhood. The highway really destroyed that. What has changed decades after the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 brought 41,000 miles of interstates to the country is the recognition of the harm that was done to communities left in the shade of these now aging roadways. Now you realize, now, now you, you realize what we were saying. Now you realize you made a mistake. 41,000 miles of U.S. Interstate Highway. It ran through about 1,600 African-American communities. Read the book, How White Folks Got So Rich, The Untold Story of American White Supremacy, because they talk about the, the Federal Aid Highway Acts of 1952 and 1956 in this book. Racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race. It has nothing to do with calling people racial epithets and not liking people and things like this. Racism is a power structure. Racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race. It was public policy that put us in this predicament. It's going to be public policy that takes us out of this predicament. Just dealing with economic empowerment is not going to do it. That's the hustle people run on you when they're trying to sell you entrepreneurship classes and books and seminars. Because if you actually understand history and you understand economics, you understand that is laws and politics that shape the economy that your black owned business operates within.
That's why during the coronavirus pandemic, we lost 41% of our businesses. They had to shut down. Laws and policies shape the economy that your business operates within. And, and when you when you read this book, or even if you read Black Label, White Wealth by Dr. Claude Anderson, and there are other books like this, you understand the impact that politics has on economics and the economy. All right, let's continue here. Now all you got to do is look at Tulsa, Oklahoma. They rebuilt Black Wall Street after the after the Tulsa race massacre. They rebuilt it. And what happened? Land was taken by eminent domain politics. Expressways ran through politics, wiping out homes and businesses. It was thriving again and, and it was thriving again in 1926 when Dr. W.B. Bois visited. It was thriving in the 40s, 50s and 60s. You're going to have some descendants of the pioneers and things like this who are going to set off the land and move away. That's true. But you're going to but, but you're going to have eminent domain taking land and you're going to have expressways running through. And that did severe damage. And it has never recovered from that. Tulsa has never recovered from that. From 1957 to 1977, the Federal Aid Highway Act displaced over 475,000 households and 1 million people, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation. When you go study these communities, these communities were thriving, but they were negative, negatively impacted by, poli by politics, by laws, by policies. They had economic empowerment. They had businesses. That stuff was wiped out. Now, as many of these hulking structures reach obsolescence, the federal government in many states and cities are belatedly recognizing the harm they cause. Surprise, surprise, surprise. And they are working with communities to design alternatives that repair the damage. But in many cases, those plans are reopening old wounds and leading to protracted debates that politicians and engineers are struggling to solve. Of more than 50 interstate highways across the country, nearing the end of their lifespan, NBC News examined three urban neighborhoods that show the range of proposals underway to redress the harms caused by the construction of interstates. Now, the two trillion dollar uh, infrastructure bill that Biden is proposing, there's about 40 billion that addresses the harm that expressways have done in um, inner cities. OK, now in the revised one trillion plus, that's a compromise with Republicans. I'm not sure what's in there. I haven't had a chance to look and see what's in there. But the original two trillion dollar, I know this. I know this is addressed in that original two trillion dollar. Go through and read the rest of this. We may talk about this tomorrow on tomorrow's show. This is too much to deal with in just one show. Okay, but see, all this ties into history. Politics is the distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, the adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. Economic empowerment, economics is not separate from politics. Your black-owned business needs a healthy economy to, to thrive in and survive in. All you got to do is look at the COVID-19 economy and see what happened, and all those businesses shut down. And then, and then on the other side, 
of uh, on the other side of COVID, there's going to be a massive number of foreclosures and evictions. That's on the other side of COVID. All this ties into politics. And elections have consequences. We saw what happens when you have an idiot in office who, who, who doesn't understand how to read his presidential daily briefing. We, we stupidity kills. That we see the effects of that. All right, I want to go back to the first article here. This is a deep one here by NBC News, a deep analysis. And th- there are other articles that deal with the impact of uh, of the highways. Uh, there was one from. Um, it was one from. Inkprogress.org from a few years ago, March 31st, 2021. And even Buttigieg, uh, the secretary of transportation, the new secretary of transportation, Pete Buttigieg, he's acknowledged how the expressways have damaged African-American communities and non-white communities. Top infrastructure official explains how America used highways to destroy black neighborhoods. This is um, thinkprogress.org, March 31st, 2016. Top infrastructure official explains how America used highways to destroy black neighborhoods. Okay. And a lot of these were thriving communities. And they're going to have expressways run through them, displaced homes, displaced businesses. And then you have white people, 40% of them surveyed April 4th, 2018. Uh, by Gallup in the uh, the article from Newsweek.com, 40% of white people surveyed said black people would be just as successful as white people. They just tried harder. <laughs> we did. <laughs> That's how we got in the first place. The question we should ask is what happened to what we got? That's what you don't want to deal with. That's why you're attacking the 1619 Project and critical race theory. And that's why you're attacking the, the teaching of systemic racism in schools. Because what we're talking about is how what we got was taken. That's what you don't want to deal with. 40% of whites think black people just need to try harder poll fines. Uh, April 4th, April 4th, 2018. Significance of April 4th, 2018, if you don't know. That was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. All right, read, read that article from Newsweek.com. Uh, let's continue here. Okay, so uh, many high-speed highways are in or go through communities, communities of color thanks to a federal effort in the 1950s to modernize the nation's roadways. Now, these fatalities have been going upward for a decade, okay? These fatalities have been going upward for a decade, Calvin Gladney said. He said, quote, you go, uh, you go to a black you go to black and brown communities. You go to black and brown communities. You go to lower income communities and you don't see many sidewalks. You don't see as many pedestrian crossings. These types of streets that go through African-American and, and Latino neighborhoods are like many highways where the speed limit is 35 or 45 miles per hour. You see this disproportionately in African-American and Latino communities, often because of race-based decisions 
of the past, often because of race-based decisions of the past. So in other words, to understand what's taking place today, you have to understand the history of how you got here. You have to understand the past. You have to understand the laws and policies that were put in place that brought you to this point. If you want to understand how this happened and how to correct it. This is why the history is so important. Now, little to no infrastructure funding means those in African, African American neighborhoods live with poor roads, dangerous proximity to waste sites, toxic dumps and things like this that then pollute the air, pollute the soil, also pollute the water system oftentimes. So you deal with environmental racism. This is all connected. So you deal with environmental racism. And then it, it, when you have higher levels of environmental racism, higher toxicity in the soil, in the water, more polluted air, then that develops into what? That develops into health ailments, asthma, bronchitis, all different types of things like that. Little to no infrastructure funding means those in African-American neighborhoods live with poor roads, dangerous proximity to waste sites, little access to public transportation and more. Along with the systemic nature of this problem, Charles Gladney pointed out that social racism also plays a role in the rising number of traffic fatalities. A 2017 study from the University of Nevada found that drivers are less likely to slow down or stop for African-American pedestrians than they are for white ones. I read about this in 2017 when it came out. All this is racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race. The goal, especially Republicans, is to confuse you on what racism is so you can't fight what you can't see and don't understand. Keep you ignorant. They, they don't want they, they want don't want this history taught in school. Largely don't want to deal with systemic racism. Don't want that taught in school. Want to suppress how you teach about slavery. Want to attack the 1619 project. Because when you start understanding how this whole thing is constructed, you can dismantle it. Where they benefit from the maldistribution of wealth, power, and resources. So they don't want you to understand how all this is connected. A 2017 study from the University of Nevada found that drivers are less likely to slow down or stop for African-American pedestrians than they are for white ones. I wonder why. Do you, you think maybe that has something to do with the fact that you only protect what you respect? You think maybe that has something to do with the fact that you only protect what you respect? And maybe when you have music and entertainment that degrades you and dehumanizes you and calls you all type of N-words and things like this and disrespects your women. This causes people, you know, the way people treat you is largely based upon how they think about you. How they think about you is largely based upon what they've been taught about you. What they've been taught about you is largely based upon what they read, certain, what they've read, seen and heard about you. So you think maybe that has an impact on how we get treated? There was a, um, I saw the study before. I read it when it came out because I read all this stuff. There was one I was reading earlier today from the guardian that deals with, it talks about the disparity of, of trees, the disparity, how 
communities of color are less likely to have the same amount of trees as white communities are. And what this does, when you have more trees in your communities, uh, the trees clean the air, but also provide shade, which reduces the temperatures in those areas. And, the, and it has to do with uh, energy consumption and different things like this. Uh, we'll talk about that in the next two or three days. But I, I want to look at, I want to try to zoom in on this one here. Um, I want to see if I can try to pull up this this study right quick. What we're going to do, uh, we're going to go to clip uh, clip number one, uh, Shakita. While I look for this, I, I want to go to, uh, this is from Politics Nation, MSNBC. Um, Reverend Al Sharpton spoke with Charles Brown, president and CEO of Equitable Cities, uh, to discuss uh, this study uh, and assess the rise in traffic fatalities. Uh, let's go to this clip. The COVID-19 pandemic hit black and brown communities the hardest. But new data shows it wasn't just the virus that disproportionately targeted us. Despite fewer cars on the road, traffic deaths were up last year by 7% overall, but 23% among black people. Joining me now is Professor Charles Brown of Rutgers University, founder and CEO of Equitable Cities. Uh, now, Professor, let me start with possible explanations for this disparity. According to the Washington Post, researchers have concluded black communities tend to be crisscrossed more uh, by more dangerous roads, and the situation was compounded in the pandemic because black people were more likely to have the kind of essential jobs that required them to be out on those roads. Uh, are these are there any other factors? Let me put it that way. Are there any other factors that we should be aware of for this startling uh, of, of discovery of the uh, rising, the, the, the rise of, of deaths uh, by uh, automobiles last year in the pandemic? Yes. First of all, I'm very shocked and it's, it's a pleasure to be here. You're looking dapper as always. No, thank um, you. In addition, <laughs> In addition to what was mentioned, um, other factors should uh, should be considered include the lack of lighting in black and brown communities. As that report showed, crashes were up during the nighttime. This is indicative of the fact that in contrast to black and brown communities like counterparts, they disproportionately work during less traditional hours. Blacks are also overrepresented among those who begin work during the evening, late night, midnight, early morning hours, and et cetera. It also has to do with vehicle access and ownership. As we know, Blacks and Latino households were much less likely to own a car than their white counterparts. Therefore, a disproportionate share of them were attempting to walk, to bike, or to take public transit to work. Mm. Then, as we take into consideration public transit, we know that they're more likely to use public transit. But when we consider the fact that public transit wasn't as accessible to uh, them during COVID, that left many of them again looking at alternative forms of transportation, such as walking or biking or catching a ride by a family and friend. Then place matters too. Let's not ignore, uh, ignore place in this equation. 
And this is a report shows that the increases in the traffic fatalities were on urban interstates and urban local and collective roads, 15 to 20% respectively. Who lives in those locations for the most part? They're overwhelmingly black and brown. Mm. Then there's a matter of commute distances. Blacks and Hispanics also tend to live further away from their jobs. So these are factors that must be taken into consideration. Now, now it's not just the drivers and passengers at risk. A 2021 report from Smart Growth America showed black pedestrians were 82% more likely to be hit by drivers. Is this something that can be addressed by infrastructure improvements and higher standards for drivers or something else entirely? Oh, absolutely. We, we all know these communities are in desperate need, these black and brown and native communities are in desperate need of safe, equitable, and inclusive access to transportation options so that they can get safely to their job and services. Unfortunately, though, what we've seen is that historically what happens is this victim blinding. And we also coupled out the fact that state and local governments are leaning heavily towards education and enforcement over investment in these communities. See, despite the fact that Black and Native Americans are killed disproportionately over and over on our roadways, what they receive is enforcement and education, whereas their counterparts, for the most part, receive a disproportionate share of infrastructure investments. See, this is nothing new, as we all know. Unfortunately, ultimately, though, it points to a deeper or more systemic issue at all levels of government, and we have to get to the root cause of it. But I'll leave you with this as it relates to that. We know NHTSA needs, NHTSA and others should be providing us with a demographic profile of the drivers that are striking, injuring, and killing pedestrians, bicyclists, and others on our world roadways. Why is it that we know more about the race, the age, the gender, the sex of the victim, but very little about the drivers? Rather than that nearly 39,000 people die in motor vehicle crashes, Every year, you think there'd be uh, an outcry to know the other half of that story. No, that's a good point. Now, as bad as the disparity is in the black community, American Indian and Alaskan Natives traffic deaths were even worse. Is this also an issue of unsafe roads in those communities? How does the issue differ in rural areas like reservations? A briefly, please. Oh, yes, I grew up in an area of 500 people, so I know very much about this. It has a lot to do with the fact that those environments cater more to automotive traffic. Uh, traffic. It has a lot to do with you have to drive further to get to your daily needs. And lastly, it has to do with the fact that um, many Native American communities, some, I should say, have casinos. And due to this, you have increased traffic from the outside. You have people driving under influence, and you have speeding, all which together will certainly increase the fatality rate on our roadworks. All right. Thank you for joining us, Charles Brown. Thank Up you. next, my final Okay, call. pause it right there. Pause it right there. Okay. So that is from June twenty seventh, twenty twenty one. Victims of traffic fatalities are disproportionately black and native. That's from Politics Nation MSNBC. Uh that's at MSNBC.com. All right. Uh, I want to go back to uh, the piece quickly here from uh, NBC News. 
So a 2017 study from the University of Nevada found that drivers are less likely to slow down for black pedestrians than they are uh, for white ones. And I I pulled up this piece here from WBUR.org that talks about this study. This is from... um, uh, March 28, 2017 study finds drivers less likely to stop at crosswalks when pedestrians are black study finds drivers less likely to stop at crosswalks when pedestrians are black. I remember when I, I read this, when this came out, uh, a new study from the university of Nevada, Las Vegas finds that African-American pedestrians are twice as likely as white pedestrians to be passed by vehicles while waiting to cross the street at a crosswalk. The findings mirror those from an earlier study by researchers at Portland State University and the University of Arizona. Uh, so uh, read this, um, read this uh, for article and do some more research on that also. Okay. On that study from 2017. Now, Uh, Charles Glad, uh, Charles Gladney, and, I mean, Calvin Gladney said that efforts from President Joe Biden's $2 trillion American jobs plan, the infrastructure bill, which includes efforts to make public transportation more accessible and improve road safety are necessary. And that although the situation is dire, it is fixable. Although the situation is dire, it is fixable. This public policy that brought you, put you in this predicament is going to be public policy that takes you out of this predicament. It's not going to be economic empowerment. Economic empowerment has its purpose, but the solution to bad public policies is not economic empowerment. Solution to bad public, bad public policies is to fire the people that keep writing the bad public policies, run better candidates, write better policies, and correct the, and, and correct the policies that are doing you harm. The solution to bad public policies is not economic empowerment. Because those policies shape the economy that your black owned business operates within and needs to and needs to uh, uh, needs a, a healthy economy to survive because you need people who have money to spend with you so you can stay in business. So when you have high unemployment, it negatively hurts African-American businesses. Definitely. We, we saw all this during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're still not done with all this. We're still down maybe three and a half million jobs, something like that. But on the other side of this, you got a massive number of foreclosures and evictions coming. But then also we're dealing with the student loan debt, the student loan uh, uh, moratorium, the student loan forbearance, all that. You have a reckoning coming. Now, uh, Calvin Gladney said uh, small policy changes like lowering the speed limit in some areas could save hundreds of lives each year. Federal efforts like the 2021 Complete Streets Act introduced by Representative Steve Cohen, Democrat from Tennessee, would ensure public roads and, uh, are safe and accessible for multiple modes of, of travel. Calvin Gladney said, quote, the pandemic illuminated issues that people have been ignoring. He said these are the same streets and the same roads that have always been there. If we have intention, if we have intentionality to get to racial equity and close the disparities, 
we actually can fix this. If we have intentionality to, to get to racial equity and close the disparities, we actually can fix this. Once again, you're dealing with policies, you're dealing with laws. Politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties that adopts interpretation and enforcement. So politics impacts every aspect of our lives, from the water we drink to the food we eat to the air we breathe. All right. Um, so if you like this type of information, also you can support the African History Network, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. If you, if you do it through um, YouTube, uh, they take a third of uh, uh, what we get. And we only, they only pay out once a month also. Uh, if you do it through PayPal and cash out, we get it right away. We're here six days a week. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting. Um, and then when you do it through cash app, it'll say, uh, it's dollar sign, the AHN show, S H O W. Uh, it'll say Michael and show my picture there. This is, uh, that's our official cash app account. These other ones are fake ones. Those watching on Facebook and YouTube, uh, we're going to keep broadcasting for a few more minutes. We'll talk some about Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael. It's his 80th uh, birthday. We're out of time here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFTF. Remember, right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. All right. Stand by. All right. Also, uh, be sure to register for uh, our new online course starting up. Sunday, July 4th, 2021, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. This is a 10-week online course that I teach. We do the class live. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch it over and over again, all archived if you miss anything. Go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. When you scroll down the page, you'll see the information for the online course. It's regularly $130 on sale, $80. Click right here to register here. Click on Enroll on the next page. Uh, you can start watching the archived content. Classes 1 through 7 of the Saturday course that I'm currently te teaching. The Saturday course, we have three more, two more sessions. We have two more sessions of the Saturday course, but we have the Sunday course starting up Sunday, July 4th. So you'll be enrolled in both of them. You can watch uh, the archive content of the Saturday course, and then you'll be enrolled for the uh, new one that starts on Sunday, July 4th. All right. For 25 years, the Black History 101 Mobile Museum has carried on the rich legacy of the Black Museum movement in America by showcasing original artifacts of the Black experience at colleges, universities, K-12 schools, corporations, libraries, conferences, and cultural events, making it the most traversed Black History mobile exhibit in American history. Dr. Khalid El Hakim is the founder of the Black History 101 Mobile Museum, and he is a highly sought after public speaker on topics of black history, social studies, education, museum studies, hip hop and race relations. Dr. Khalid was named among the change makers for NBC Universal's Erase the Hate campaign and listed as one of the 100 men of distinction for black enterprise. He recently founded the Michigan Hip Hop Archive on the campus of Western Michigan University.
The Black History One on One Mobile Museum is currently scheduling in person and virtual exhibits nationwide. For more information, please contact Dr. Khalid Al Hakim directly at 313 645 4197. 313-645-4197 or visit their website at blackhistorymobilemuseum.com that's blackhistorymobilemuseum.com you can also email him at bhistory101 at yahoo.com bhistory101 at yahoo.com Black on Purpose Television Network yes, Black on Purpose Television Network all black all positive all the time the largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30-plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network. Subscribe now. Uh, I want to go to uh, this next story here. So today is the uh, 80th birthday of Kwame Ture, born Stokely Carmichael. Civil rights activist, human rights activist, popularized the term black power, pan-Africanist, anti-war African anti-war activist, uh, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture. So there's a piece from um, blackpast.org. It's a piece from blackpast.org. And uh, then I want to share, I'm going I'm to see how much I can get through with this. Okay. I had to teach a two hour class today before this show. Um, so some of this, we may continue tomorrow to be quite honest with you. Because I was tired before I started the show. So um, we'll see how much I can get through. I want to look at this piece from uh, blackpast.org dealing with Kwame Ture. And let me. All right. So he was born June 29th, 1941. Um, he would be 80 years old today. He was born in Port of Spain, Port of Spain, Trinidad. He was Trinidadian. Now, some people don't know this. Some people may not know this about him. They want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, you weren't, you, you know, your ancestors weren't slaves or some stuff you came from somewhere else or some whatever you know whatever they can well, I mean anyway uh <laughs> Marcus Garvey Shirley Chisholm uh Kwame Ture all have Caribbean ancestry Nat Turner's mother came from Haiti uh you know, so, but anyway, let me pull this picture back up. I want, I want, uh, I think this is the one I want. 
Oh, no, actually, I want this one here because this one, I cropped this one. That's the one I put together. Let's go to this one here. So I want to look at this bio here from blackpass.org. Minister Farrakhan, Caribbean ancestry, Malcolm X, Caribbean ancestry. Um, Kwame Ture was a civil rights leader, anti-war activist, and pan-Africanist revolutionary. Stokely Carmichael, his birth name, is best known for popularizing the slogan Black Power, which in the mid-1960s galvanized the movement toward more uh, militant and separatist uh, assertions of black identity, nationalism and empowerment and away from the liberal interracial pac uh, pacifism of the now here they say of Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But uh, there was some difference between Kwame Ture and Dr. King. But Dr. Dr. King was a pan-African is also. That means. 1957, Dr. King, study Dr. King, read his writings. Dr. King was a Pan-Africanist as well. You know, he was, um, oftentimes he was more practical than some other ones. I mean, Dr. King owned guns also to obey out Rustin convincing to get rid of his guns. But 1957, Dr. King goes to uh, Ghana for the celebration of Ghana's independence. He meets with uh, uh, Kwame Nkrumah. He goes to Ghana every year on the anniversary of, of their independence. When I mean, you study Dr. King, Dr. King kept abreast of the developments on the continent of Africa. Dr. King was a Pan-Africanist as well. When you read um, Pan-Africanism for uh, Beginners by Sid LaMail, okay, I think it's Sid LaMail, Pan-Africanism for Beginners. It, it wasn't just Malcolm X that was a Pan-Africanist. Dr. King was one also. He was just... This is a little different. He may be he may may have expressed it differently. But Dr. King was a Pan-Africanist as well. Uh, but with the Black Power movement, they're going to interject a um what what Kwame Ture did in 1966 when he became chairman of SNCC. They're going to interject black nationalism into SNCC. Okay. And they are really echoing uh, Malcolm X in the Battle of the Bullet, uh, March 29th, 1964. Um, where's Malcolm X speaks? In uh, March 29th, 1964, April 3rd, uh, 1964, when Malcolm delivers the Ballad of the Bullet, he delivers it those three days. Uh, Washington Heights, New York, um, Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, Detroit. Uh, read Malcolm X Speaks. Read Malcolm X Speaks. This deals with some speeches um, in the last year, from 64, 65, okay? But Malcolm is one of the themes of the battle of the bullet is Malcolm is talking about interjecting black nationalism into the civil rights movement. Black Malcolm joins the civil rights movement. This is something that people miss. This is why you have to read. Okay. And then read, um, Martin Malcolm 
in America, A Dream or a Nightmare by James H. Cone. And, and Peniel Joseph has a new book out about uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X. He was on The Breakfast Club talking about it. We're Facebook friends. And I contacted him. I got to uh, trying to set up an interview with him. Where is uh, Martin? Ma oh, is this right here? Yeah, right here. Martin Malcolm in America, a dream or a nightmare. You got to read this book also. Because this book by James H. Cone, and I got this back in 1994 when I was in college. This book deals with how uh, the ideologies of Dr. King and Malcolm X are converging toward the end of both of their lives. The ideologies were converging toward the end, towards the end of both of their lives. And, 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 and Malcolm joins the civil rights movement. When you, when you watch the documentary, um, make it plain and make it plain is on YouTube. Dr. John Henrik Clark is in make it plain because he was good friends with Malcolm X. Uh, make it plain is probably the best documentary on Malcolm. Because most of the documentaries on Malcolm I've seen, um, when you watch, when you watch, uh, make it plain, they talk about when Malcolm uh, leads the nation of Islam. He, se he officially separates from the nation of Islam uh, March 8th, 1964. And there's a meeting between Malcolm and the civil rights leaders at Juanita Portier's house, um, uh, Sidney Portier's wife, Juanita Portier. And they have a meeting. Dr. King couldn't make it, but he sent a surrogate. They have a meeting between Malcolm and the civil rights leaders to get all their differences out on the table so they can work together. Malcolm was calling for a unification of the civil rights leaders while he was still in the nation of Islam. July 31st, 1963, he sent a letter to Dr. King and the other leading civil rights leaders. Calling for he, he was he was inviting them to a meeting in Harlem in 1967. And he said, we have to find a common solution to a common problem posed by a common enemy. He was calling for a unification of the civil rights leaders. And a unification of their followers as well. This is why Malcolm was still in the nation of Islam. Um, read the article from uh, Washington Post. Uh, King uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm met Malcolm X met once. The photo still haunts us with what was lost. Okay, I think this is by Denine L. Brown. Yeah, Denine L. Brown uh, for Washington Post. Read this article here, and it talks about when when uh, it doesn't just talk about the meeting. Uh, March 26, 1964, when uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X met for the first and only time at the U.S. Senate debate for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This is three days before Malcolm delivers the Battle of the Bullet. And in the Battle of the Bullet, M Malcolm references being at the U.S. Senate debate for the Civil Rights Act. He references that in the speech. This is why, one, you have to read Malcolm's speeches. Two, you have to understand history in the context and what's taking place at the same, at the time that he's delivering the speech. What are the historical events surrounding the speech? Okay, so uh, uh, read this. And when Malcolm, when Malcolm meets Dr. King, Malcolm tells Dr. King 
I'm throwing myself into the heart of the civil rights struggle. I'm throwing myself into the heart of the civil rights struggle. We haven't studied Dr. King or Malcolm. We quote them or misquote them, depending upon who you're talking about, but we haven't really studied them. Um, all right. So it talks about uh, talks about this right here, July thirty first, nineteen sixty three. Letter was dated. Malcolm called for a united front of all Negro factions, elements, and their leaders. He said this is absolutely necessary. Read the rest of this. He said the present racial crisis in this country carries within it a powerful, destructive within it powerful destructive ingredients that may soon erupt into an uncontrollable explosion. The seriousness of this situation demands that immediate steps be taken to solve this crucial problem by those who have genuine concern before the racial powder keg explodes. A united front involving all Negro factions, elements, and their leaders is absolutely necessary. This is Malcolm X, July 31st. 1963. Okay, let's go back to this quickly. So, So Kwame Ture also popularized the term black power. Now Mukasa Dada said that he was the one, Mukasa Dada said it was he himself. He worked with Kwame Ture, but Mukasa Dada, and I've interviewed him, he said he was the one who actually came up with the term black power and Kwame Ture helped popularize it. In Eyes on the Prize, the second incarnation of Eyes on the Prize, they interview Kwame Ture and Kwame Ture talks about Willie Ricks. Willie Ricks changes his name to Mukasa Dada. And he talks about how Willie Ricks really primed the people. Willie Ricks was a member of SNCC. How R Willie Ricks really primed the people for, with the term black power. So that in June of 1966, I think it was June 28th, 1966, during a march against fear in Mississippi, when Kwame Ture drops it, he comes out of jail. He gives a speech, says, we want black power. We want black power when he drops it people were ready for it because they had already been primed for it. And Mukasa Dada, Willie Ricks was one of the main ones doing this on the ground. So Kwame, uh, Stokely Carmichael was born on June 29th, 1941 in Port of Spain, Trinidad. His family uh, moved to New York, uh, to New York city when he was 11 years old. Okay, so he wasn't born in this country, people. Just so y'all people know, keep talking this nonsense. He wasn't born here. Okay, uh, he showed promise as a young student and was accepted into the mostly white Bronx High School of Science in 1956. He attended Howard University and joined the newly formed Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, in 1960. He participated in SNCC sit-ins and freedom rides throughout the Deep South. And when SNCC turned its attention to voter registration, 
uh, Stokely Carmichael led the campaign that established the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, a symbolic forerunner to the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And it's going to be from the Lowndes County Freedom Organization that Bobby Seale and, and Huey P. Newton, Huey P. Newton, one of my frat brothers of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated, they're going to get permission from the Lowndes County Freedom Organization to use their symbol. And the symbol of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization was a Black Panther. And this is where they get the Black Panther from, okay? Because all political parties have a symbol. So, they got permission from the Lowndes County Freedom Organization to use the Black Panther. And they use that for the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense found in October 1966. Now, in 1964, Kwame Ture graduated from Howard University and along with uh, other young student nonviolent coordinated committee activists, SNCC, became increasingly frustrated with the movement's reliance on white liberals and its advocacy of nonviolent reform, especially in the wake of the Democratic Party's betrayal of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. In May, now this is just so people understand, now this is before, this is uh, two or three, years, a couple of years before, you have a completion of the party realignment of the parties, which, which goes back to the Lily White movement in 1928 that most black conservatives don't want to talk about because they don't study history. Okay. Notice all these black conservatives, Candace Owens running around. Um, um, you got um, Paris Denard. Take your pick. Any of them. They don't want to talk about the compromise of 1877, which ended Reconstruction. And they don't want to deal with the Lily White movement in 1928. Because one, if they start talking about that, the funding's going to stop from these, these white uh, uh, conservatives that fund them. The funding's going to stop because you're telling too much truth then. So they, they want to talk this nonsense that they're talking about. But at the same time, most of them don't support any of the policies that we're advocating for. And most of the black Republicans in the House of Representatives and the, was only one in the Senate in half the time. You can't tell he's black. Tim Scott. Um, he's Isaiah T. Montgomery of today. Um, but all you, have, all you have to do is look at the policies they vote for. That's all you have to do. Go to Congress.gov. Look at the bills. Look at the policies they vote for. None of them. None of them support HR 40. 190 co-sponsors of HR 40 in the House of Representatives. They're all Democrats. We need the Democrat and the Republican. Sure, that ain't stupid. I can see who keeps voting against policies that we advocate for. I can see who keeps supporting policies we advocate for. I have some disagreements with some Democrats, but I got a whole lot more with Republicans. And I look and see how they vote. I look and see the policies they support. I go read the bills at Congress.gov. You can go look and see who supports these policies. So in May 1965, Kwame Ture was elected to replace John Lewis as a SNCC chairman, formalizing the shift in SNCC's ideology. During the 1966 march in Mississippi, Carmichael first proclaimed black power. Okay. That was, um, that was June. Let me look at this here. That was June 1966, June 5th. Now, okay. Um, um, that's during the March against fear. Okay. Uh, involving James Meredith 
and it was and i think zen education project has something on this here june 1966 hold on i want to get the i want to get the date right on this here this time here it is um I thought they had, I've seen this before, and I'm trying to get the right, which one was that? Okay, we've got that already. Uh, I'm looking at this already from, uh, looking at, I'm looking at the information from Stanford University already, but I want to, I th it's an eyes on the prize, and I think is, I think is June twenty eighth. See something here. I want to get the exact date on this. Uh, come on, I was stressed. Oh, okay. I think I look, all this stuff I've looked at before. It's just harder to access my bookmarks here in um, in uh, June 26, June 26, 1966. That's what it is. June 26, 1966. Kwame Ture speaking at a rally in Jackson, Mississippi at the end of the James Meredith March Against Fear. June 26, 1966. That's when he said, we want black power. We want black power. They had been arrested. They were Dr. King and uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael were in jail. And he came out. He delivers this fantastic speech. Okay. Read this piece here from uh, snickdigital.org. Snickdigital.org. This deals with... Um, James Meredith and the March Against Fear, June 1966. Sunday, June 5th, 1966, James Meredith had uh, just stepped off U.S. Highway 51 to begin a 220-mile trek uh, through Mississippi. His purpose, he told the handful of reporters, uh, there was... To, to challenge the all-pervasive overriding fear, to challenge the all-pervasive overriding fear, still dominant among many black Mississippians when they attempted to register to vote. He more than many knew about the fear and danger. In 1962, James Meredith had become the first African-American to enroll in the University of Mississippi. Mob violence and murder greeted his enrollment. Now it's going to be it's going to be uh, Megar Evers who helps him, who helps James Meredith desegregate University of Mississippi. Megar Evers wanted to desegregate University of Mississippi. He applied to uh, the law school there, but he was denied entrance into the law school. After Megar Evers served in World War II, he uh, wants to go to law school and he wanted to desegregate University of Mississippi. He wasn't able to do it, but he helped James Meredith do this. Now, uh, once again, James Meredith was met with violence just south of Hernando 
on the city uh, on the second day of his so of his solitary march, a white man by the name of Aubrey James Norvell. Aubrey James Norvell stood along the roadside and raised his shotgun, then fired three loads of buckshot at James Meredith. Several pellets struck James Meredith in, in the head, the neck and body while horrified onlookers watched. Now, this is just James Meredith is by himself marching. It's the march against fear. And his white man shoots him. Mississippi. In Mississippi is, is the same state that had same state that had the most number of lynchings from 1882 to 1968. I think they had 581 lynchings from 1882 to 1968. Almost immediately, civil rights leaders from different organizations rushed to James Meredith's bedside at a Memphis hospital with plans to continue the march against fear, the march against fear while James Meredith recuperated. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Congress of Racial uh, Equality uh, 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 National Director Floyd McKissick met with SNCC's Cleveland Sellers, Stanley Wise, and newly, and newly elected SNCC Chairman Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, who stressed that the march was an opportunity to organize in communities along the march route to organize in communities along the march route. SNCC wanted to march to focus attention on local voter registration efforts by bringing marchers and reporters to Mississippi towns where most African-Americans were still unregistered as voters. See, all this goes back to the, all this goes back to the, the to the Mississippi state constitution in 1890, which instituted the poll taxes and literacy test to suppress the African-American vote. This is what they're fighting against in 66, 65 and 66. Now, you got the Voting Rights Act of 65 that passed, but now you have to register people to vote. But there's still a fear of the white supremacists they've been dealing with for decades in Mississippi. You got this federal law, but white supremacists can't read. They don't care about nothing. They, they don't care about that. So you're still dealing with these white supremacists down here in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia. OK, and Florida. In Texas, I'm talking. I'm talking about then. I'm not talking about today. I'm, talk, I'm talking about back then. I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about back then. <laughs> so, so SNCC wanted to march to focus attention on local voter registration efforts by bringing marchers and reporters to Mississippi towns where most African-Americans were still unregistered as voters. This is 1966, after the Voting Rights Act in 1965, most African-Americans were still unregistered as voters. They also insisted that marchers use civil, di civil disobedience in communities where they encountered resistance. Now, Dr. King was the march's uh, most visible figure African-Americans in Mississippi and throughout the South idolized Dr. King and trusted his leadership. Dr. King, for his part, was aware of a new anger, a new anger among young African-Americans in SNCC and elsewhere. And one could detect in his speeches during the march attempts to reflect the new racial mood without abandoning the ideas of nonviolence and brotherhood. 
Though respecting Dr. King, SNCC participants sought opportunities to convey the idea that beyond getting more black people registered to vote, a more radical approach to change was now necessary. A more radical approach to change was now necessary. It was within this context that SNCC's Willie Ricks, Mukasa Dada, Willie Ricks, and Stokely Carmichael Kwame Ture shouted out Black Power. Black Power, a shortened version of Black Power for Black People. Black Power for Black People. This scared the hell out of a lot of white liberals because when, when, see, when Kwame Ture, when he wins the chairmanship of SNCC, John Lewis and Diane Nash, a lot of them are going to leave. A lot of more integrationist type, not a slight against them, but I'm just saying, a lot of them are going to leave SNCC. And Kwame Ture, the, the, and those professing black nationalism, they really don't want white people in SNCC. Okay? SNCC is taking a turn. SNCC organizers have been using the phrase in Alabama. They've been using the phrase black power for black people in Alabama. And Willie Ricks was priming the people for it. So when Kwame Ture drops it June 26, 1966, the people were already ready for it. This shout out generated more controversy than SNCC anticipated and dominated news analysis of the march. It also thrust Stokely Carmichael onto the national stage. But more than the slogan, Black Power described the march. Now, this is before the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense is founded. This is June of 66. Black, Party for Self Black Panther Party for Self-Defense is organized October of 66. Mississippi activists wanted the James Meredith March, quote, to deliver some concrete results for Mississippi black people by registering new voters and providing political education through mass rallies. Okay, this is what Mississippi activists wanted the James Meredith March to do. Eventually, March leaders decided to craft a manifesto calling on President Johnson to actively enforce existing federal laws to protect the rights of all Americans, to actively enforce existing federal laws to protect the rights of all Americans. They also requested that he send the federal registrars to all 600 counties, okay, all 600 counties in the Deep South and propose an adequate budget to deal with black to deal with black rule and urban poverty propose an, an adequate budget to deal with black rule and urban poverty they went on to urge president johnson to strengthen the 1966 civil rights bill by accelerating the integration of southern juries and law enforcement agencies Representatives of various, I'm not sure if they're talking about 64, 66, 1966 Civil Rights Bill. I think they may mean 1964. Okay. Just a second here. Let's continue. So, 
they went on to urge President Johnson to strengthen the 1960, I think it's 64 Civil Rights Bill by accelerating the integration of Southern juries. Southern juries and law enforcement agencies. And just a second here, let me look at something here. Okay, there was there was one in 66, but that was killed by a Senate filibuster. Yeah, I, I I think they mean 64. There was one in the House of Representatives in 66, but that was killed by a Senate filibuster. And uh, I, I think they mean the Civil Rights Act of 64. Okay. Now, so they went, they went on to urge uh, President Johnson to strengthen the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Bill by accelerating the integration of Southern juries and law enforcement agencies. Representatives of various civil rights organ organizations operating in Mississippi, like the uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, Delta Ministry, and, and the state NAACP endorsed the march and the manifesto, with the exception of Charles Evers, claiming the document was, quote, too critical, too critical of President Johnson. Now, the day after James Meredith was shot, Mississippi held its primary elections. As a result of the Voting Rights Act, almost 140,000 people were now registered. Almost 140,000 people were now registered. Yet only one fourth of those registered voted in the primary. Okay. Only so as, as a result of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, almost 140,000 African-Americans in Mississippi were registered to vote. Yet only one fourth of those registered to vote actually voted in the primary. Some attributed the low African-American turnout to fear that followed the James Meredith shooting. So much uh, so, so March leaders decided that instead of following James Meredith's original route straight down Highway 51, the march would turn westward into the heart of the Delta. Terms of organizers, I'm sorry, teams of organizers split split off from the main group traveling towards the surrounding counties and used the march as a catalyst to encourage African-Americans to register to vote. The march received its greatest reception in, uh, in Granada, a small town of 10,000 people, halfway between Memphis and Jackson, okay? Uh, but it was not in the Delta that the marchers met the greatest resistance. It was not in the Delta that the marchers met the greatest resistance. In Canton, Mississippi, a center of Congress of Racial Equality organizing efforts, CORE, local police officers ordered them to leave 
when they tried to pitch their overnight tents on the grounds of a black elementary school. Then they put on their gas masks. And while the crowd stood silently, lawmen fired off many canisters of tear gas and waded into the marchers swinging their billy clubs. As one journalist noted, they, quote, came stomping in behind the gas, gun butting and kicking the men, women and children. They were not arresting. They were punishing. They were not arresting. They were punishing. This failed to halt the march. And when it reached Jackson, Mississippi on June 26, 1966, the participants, now numbering 15,000 people, made it the largest civil rights march in Mississippi history. James Meredith had rejoined the march the day before. Now, you had uh, June 26, 1966, you're going to have... Uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael de de uh, deliver a speech also and, and say, we want black power. Let me see something here. We have, uh, let me, what is that? Uh, the rest of this we'll get to tomorrow. I think, um, I had the interview I did with Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, associate professor, of history at Ohio State University. I interviewed him August 2nd, 2020. We dealt with John Lewis' uh, funeral and the remarks that Bill Clinton made about Kwame Ture at John Lewis' funeral. We'll share that tomorrow because uh, we talked about that and that ties, that ties into this year with Kwame Ture. Uh, so, Uh, let me go back to this quickly from blackpast.org. During the 1966 march in Mississippi, uh, Kwame Ture first proclaimed, proclaimed black power. The slogan and uh, Stokely Carmichael's subsequent efforts to both define it and put it into practice turned him into a media celebrity and a lightning rod and a lightning rod for white criticism and government repression. Black power fragmented the liberal civil rights coalition Black power fragmented the liberal civil rights coalition of the 1950s and early 1960s, but inspired subsequent, subsequent groups such as the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which, despite ideological disagreements, named Stokely Carmichael as his honorary prime minister in 1968. Let me flip over to this here. Now, Carmichael spent the last decades of his life abroad denouncing U.S. racism and imperialism while working to build uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. He changed his name to Kwame Ture in 1968 in honor of his friends and political allies, Pan-African leader Seiko Ture and Kwame Nkrumah. In 1969, Kwame Ture settled permanently uh, in uh, uh, Conakry, uh, uh, Guinea, where he died of prostate cancer in 1998. I remember when he passed away also in 1998 as well. That was shocking. So read this uh, here from blackpast.org. Oakley Carmichael Kwame Ture, 1948 to 1998. He would have been 80 years old today. 
The rest of this we'll get to tomorrow. I'll share the interview with you uh, tomorrow that I did with Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, who's a nephew of one of my teachers, Dr. Leonard Jeffries, and he's associate professor of uh, history at Ohio State University. We'll, we'll deal with because I have a lot more information, but this is enough radio for one day. Okay. Um, if you like this type of information, you support the African History Network, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Also, click on the like button as well. If you like this type of information, click on the like button that helps it uh, perform better with the algorithms from uh, Facebook and YouTube. And uh, when you support us, uh, this helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting six days a week also. You can still register for, we have the new online course starting up Sunday, uh, July 4th. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade with Identity Twin School. And we deal with thousands of years of history, and we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place also. So that's at our website, uh, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We do the classes live. All the sessions are recorded. You still have access to the course even after the, you know, the class is over with. So next year, you can still go through and watch uh, the course all over again. All right, we'll post the link here. I'm going to post the link here for uh, the course. You can register for that. As soon as you register, you can start watching the bonus content also. All right, look, we have to get out of here. Remember, the African History Network, you focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now, it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. Uh, Wakanda forever. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, peace. Thanks for tuning in. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music. Black history and more. 30 plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network. Subscribe now. Digital Dandelion's Technical Solutions works with businesses like yours to create an operations manual for your business, which is something many businesses don't have. According to AARP, more than 30% of small business owners are over 50 years old. Many business owners want to retire by selling their businesses or by passing their businesses on to their children. However, according to Forbes Investment Advisors, many retiring owners attempt to sell their businesses for retirement fail. You cannot sell your business without a business manual. Your children also cannot inherit your business because there is no way to run it. Your business does not have to die when you leave. Their business Bible products will give you the tools you need for a thriving business that can make you money even after you retire. Are you looking at increasing your business's annual revenue? 
Digital dandelions can help you make at least $100,000 in annual revenue and expand your business. Speak with them today about solidifying your business. Visit digitaldandelions.com today and get a free 30-minute consultation. We all know the cannabis industry is headed toward an uprise in the past decade. What happens when there is a brand that brings this uprise in a blow? The cannabis industry welcomes her uprise. Hustle Her Hemp. Delivering excellence with pride is her watchword, and how you choose to embrace it makes it a priority. From cultivating rich cannabis into exquisite and tastefully finished CBD products to delivery, Hustle Her Hemp leaves no stone unturned. Hustle Her Hemp's mission is to empower women of color by building business and creating legacies, uniting beauty, health, and business. We are a pure definition of how we want the CBD industry to become in the future. While we are redefining innovation, we bring the same energy to improving the quality of life. Hustle Her Hemp is the new Uprise. Hi, I'm Joel Wilson, President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting LLC, a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services. We are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365 and Surface tablets, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses, take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701. For 25 years, the Black History 101 Mobile Museum has carried on the rich legacy of the Black Museum movement in America by showcasing original artifacts of the Black experience at colleges, universities, K-12 schools, corporations, libraries, conferences, and cultural events making it the most traversed black history mobile exhibit in American history. Dr. Khalid El Hakim is the founder of the Black History 101 Mobile Museum, and he is a highly sought after public speaker on topics of black history, social studies, education, museum studies, hip hop and race relations. Dr. Khalid was named among the change makers for NBC Universal's Erase the Hate campaign and listed as one of the 100 men of distinction for black enterprise. He recently founded the Michigan Hip Hop Archive on the campus of Western Michigan University. The Black History 101 Mobile Museum is currently scheduling in-person and virtual exhibits nationwide. 
For more information, please contact Dr. Khalid Al-Hakim directly at 313-645-4197, 313-645-4197, or visit their website at blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. That's blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. You can also email him at bhistory101 at yahoo.com, bhistory101 at yahoo.com.